0: Well, the Sermon on the Mount, let's close things this morning. Kind of interesting as, a, uh, as if you've noticed in the sermon as a whole, the, the narrative that the sermon begins with a blessing, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, you know, several blessings, and it ends with a warning. Begins with a blessing, ends with a warning. And they say, whoever they are, right, They say that in speeches, in public addresses, in sermons, it's what you say at the end that people remember the most, what you say at the very end that people remember the most. So I want you to listen this morning closely to how Jesus closes out his most famous sermon and think about why he wants us to hear this, at least least as important as anything else before we leave here this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. If this is your first time with us, you can find the text on the handout at your table. Let me read it to us this morning. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we do thank you for our um, our time together in your word. Um, We thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us, Um, not just historically in the past, but in the present, that you make promises to us and that you fulfill those promises by giving us your spirit. And we pray that that's what would happen this morning, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we might hear something that we need to hear this morning, Oh, Jesus, we pray most of all that we would become like the man who built his house on the rock, and that though we we face storms, that we weather those storms, oh, Lord, though we're confronted by adversity, that our house, our lives, stand still and endure in the face of it. Would you show us what that means for us this morning, we pray in your name. Amen. This past week, I finished reading Wright Thompson's article on Tiger Woods called The Secret History of Tiger Woods. And If you've not read that article, I would commend it to you. I would commend Wright Thompson to you in general. Thompson is a, a senior writer for ESPN. He's from the small town of Clarksdale, Mississippi, um, but lives now in, uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, another small town that seems to incubate great writers. And Thompson is very, very talented. When you read any of his pieces, you inevitably learn not just about the subject that he's writing about, but about yourself. And um, he's writing the story on the fall of Tiger Woods. The fall of Tiger Woods, the coming apart of a legend. I just want to share with you this morning a few passages from the article that, that stood out to me. Okay. The first is the question that frames the article for him. He, he writes this, how did all that Tiger had built, how did it come undone so quickly and so completely? That is the question that will shadow him for the rest of his life. And what Thompson zeroes in it on over the course of the article really is the strained and yet strong connection between Tiger and his father Earl. So later on he writes the following. Like many overachieving kids in a broken home, Tiger found early on that his talent could help create the family that he wanted. He could mend the broken places inside of all of them. It's also clear that Tiger grew up first emulating his dad and then trying to be better than him. Thompson writes, all sons, whether they love or hate their fathers, or some combination of both, want to cleanse themselves of any inherited weakness, shaking free from the past. This is certainly true for Tiger, whose father seems to evoke conflicting emotions. The best and the worst things have happened in the life of Tiger Woods because of Earl. Here's another one. Thompson writes, we never see the past coming up behind us because shaping the future takes so much energy. Let me say that again. We never see the past coming up behind us because shaping the future takes so much effort. That's one of those lessons that everyone has to learn for themselves, including Tiger Woods. He juggled a harem of women at once, looking for something he could not find, and he either ignored or did not, did not notice the patterns repeating from Earl's life. One of his first managers of his foundation put it like this in the article. I don't have this written down. I hope I get it right. He said, basically, the mantra of Tiger's life became this, mirror, mirror on the wall, we all become like our fathers after all. Mirror, mirror on the wall, we all become like our fathers after all. And then finally, Thompson concludes this way, all driven people experience a reckoning at the end of their life's work. All driven people experience a reckoning at the end of their life's work, and when that work feels incomplete or somehow tainted, those regrets can fester with time. That reckoning is coming for Tiger, which worries his friend Michael Jordan, which I think is really funny that Michael Jordan is just a friend of Tiger's in the article, just worries his friend Michael Jordan, who knows more about the next 10 years of Tiger's life than nearly anyone alive. Jordan says this, it is jarring to be dominant And then to have it suddenly all end. I don't know if Tiger's happy about that or sad, Jordan says. I think he's tired. I think he really wishes he could retire, but he doesn't know how to do it yet. And I don't think he wants to leave it where it is right now. If he could win a major and walk away, he would, I think. So you're all listening uh, pretty uh, intensely this morning. And I can tell because I think you've lived the last 20 years yourself that we have witnessed the rise and fall of a, a, a golfing legend over those 20 years. And whether you care about the story of Tiger Woods or not, we should at least care about the question that his life publicly provokes for us. What is it that causes a life to rise and to fall um, so quickly? How, how do lives go up and down? How does someone's life rise and then come crashing down? How does a life fall apart? And one of the great things about Thompson's article is something that we all know from experience is that a fall, like Tiger had when he drove his what his his escalator, whatever it was, into the light pole, a fall is almost always never a fall, right? A fall is almost always a quick slide, that comes from patterns that have emerged over days and months and years and even decades that largely go unnoticed in the life of a man or a woman. So many of you, not all of you, but many of you know who Skip Ryan is, right? Uh, Skip was the former pastor here at Park City's Presbyterian Church. Skip had a very public fall about 10 years ago centered around his addiction uh, to pain medication And God has given Skip a very powerful ministry since then. And and Skip tells the story after he first became sober, about one or two years after. And God had begun to do really deep and powerful things in his life. He began to understand and know God in ways he had never known before and began to understand himself in ways he had never understood himself before. And he tells the story of going out with his friends, being in a cohort with his friends who got together and, and talked about life and ministry. These are other powerful ministers in our denomination and other denominations who lead large churches. And Skip shared his story with them and after the story was over, one of the ministers uh, from a, a very large church in Memphis a lot like Skip very very gifted looked at Skip and said this how do I get what you have now without going what you went through to get it? That is how, how do I live a deep and meaningful life without going through the pain of that life first coming apart. Isn't that what you wanna know this morning? How do you, how do you get something that is, that is vibrant, that is real, that is deep and meaningful without having to go through the pain of having your life and your family and your work crashing down upon you? And if you've paid attention at all to your friends or just life in general, you know that the unraveling of a man's life can happen to anyone. It's not just for those who have uh, daddy issues. (laughs) It's not just for those who are stressed out. Anyone can fall. Anyone can fall. The English reformer John Bradford, he famously said upon seeing a criminal being taken to the place of his execution, he looked at the criminal and said, and you know the words, he said, but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. But for the grace of God go I. In other words, but for the grace of God, I could be that man. That could be me. And I'll tell you all of that because this morning Jesus is warning us about a fall. He's warning us about the life that we build, that it has the potential to come crashing down. And I think you'll only take his words seriously this morning if you see that it could be you. It could be you but for the grace of God goes you. How do we all build deep and meaningful lives without the pain of those lives falling apart? And listen to me, for those of us for whom the house has already come crashing down, what hope do we have? How do we go about rebuilding? Those are our questions this morning. Jesus tells us this final parable to address those and to help us, and I want us to move through the parable through a series of three contrasts this morning. The first thing I want us to look at is the contrast between the two builders. What is the difference between one builder and the other? The second one is the contrast between the two foundations. How do the the foundations themselves differ? And lastly, I want you to see the contrast between the two futures. The two builders, the two foundations, and finally, the two futures. Well, let's take those in turn. First, the two builders. What is the difference between the two builders? What is the difference? Well, on the surface, Jesus tells us, right, he says one of them is a wise builder and one of them is foolish. And so what is it that accounts for the wisdom of one builder and the foolishness of the other builder? Well, again, Jesus says it pretty plainly. He says the wise man hears his words and what? He does them Whereas the foolish man, on the other hand, hears his words and does not do them. And the point, of course, is clear that it is is possible for you to hear and to be around the words of Jesus your entire life and to never become wise. The implication is that it's never enough just to hear what Jesus says. It's not enough to come to a Tuesday morning Bible study. It's not enough to uh, hear a Sunday sermon. It's not It's not enough to read the Bible for yourself. You can't expect that exposure alone is enough to make you wise. You have to intend. You have to do it. You have to put the words into practice. Now, we'll say more about that in a moment, but I want want first just to consider the builders themselves and see if there's anything else we can glean from what makes them different. So like all parables, Jesus probably told this parable on multiple occasions, and so in the Gospels, You get these sort of slight differences in the telling of the parable. And when Luke tells this parable, when he rephrases the parable, he gives us a little bit more information about the builders. Here's what he says in chapter 6, verse 48, about the wise builder. Chapter 6, verse 48, if you're writing it down. Luke says that the builder, the wise one, is like a man building a house, listen to me, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. So that what is implicit in Matthew is made explicit in Luke, the wise man, the, the man who avoids the fall, is the man who is able and willing and patient enough to dig deep in his life. It is the man who digs deep. So in all the parables that Jesus tells with this one in, in mind, this sort of picture in mind, the houses look exactly the same. It's like walking into a, a suburban neighborhood and they're all speck houses. They look exactly the same, the foolish one and the wise one. There's no difference there. The only difference is the wise man has made it his mission to cultivate a strong foundation beneath the surface in the place where no one else sees. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous British pastor of the last century, by the way, he spent four sermons on this one parable, so it could be worse for you, like I tell my kids. It could be even worse, right? Four sermons on this parable. He says this, the difference between the wise man and the foolish man is that the foolish man is in a hurry. In Luke's Gospel, the foolish man is in a hurry. He's in a hurry to get his house built and so he doesn't take the time to cultivate what is most important, what is beneath the surface in the place where no one else ever sees. And That begs the question for you this morning. Are you in a hurry? Are you in a hurry? In general, in your life, men, are you in a hurry? Are you in a hurry with the words of Jesus? So that you hear them and they pass in and out of your hearing without without real thought, without deep application in your life. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not what? That I might not sin against you. I have taken the time to put your word in the deep places of my own soul that I might do what it says. Are you in a hurry? Are you in such a hurry that you have no time to reflect on what is happening in your own soul? You can't measure the real outcomes and consequences of the patterns that are emerging in your life, not because you're not smart enough, but because you're not slow enough. You're too hurried to have the time and the space and the margins to reflect on what is really going on at the foundational level of who you are as a man. You know you know this, and I I say this this morning not to guilt anyone, so I don't want you to hear it like that, okay? But this is why we have small group time at our tables afterwards. It's at least our vision. Whether it happens or not can certainly become a thing that you check off a list too. But the vision of having small group time, the reason we say it's so important week after week Maybe the most important thing you do is because the small group time is intended to be the place where you dig deep, where you meditate on and chew on and imagine and intend to practice the Word of God to become wise in your own life. I realize that you have meetings to make after this. This may not be the place for some of you. But somewhere in your life, you have to cultivate and create the space for God's Word to go deep. One of the differences in the two builders, the wise builder gives time to digging deep and he is not ruled by the tyranny of the urgent to the detriment of what is important in his life. He is not ruled by the tyranny of the urgent to the detriment of what is most important in his heart and in his life. Let's look next to the two foundations. Two men, two foundations, okay? What is the difference? Well, on the surface, it's uh, the wise man builds on a rock. The foolish man builds on the sand. Uh, You know what building on sand is like. You live in Dallas, right? We all have our foundations on sort of maybe sandy places. And so we're always doing foundation work and things are shifting and cracks are appearing. And when I moved to Dallas, I had to do something I've never done before. I had to water my foundation. Have you ever had to do that? Make sure that it stays watered? Where I'm from, you always moved water away from the foundation, but you have to sort of get the soil just right so your foundation doesn't move. And you know this, but the foundation, even though no one sees it, is the most important part of your house. When the foundation is messed up, the whole house gets out of whack, right? So what is the rock? What is the foundation that Jesus calls us to? Well, Jesus says the rock is doing these words of mine. Right, building your house on the rock is actually doing the words of Jesus. I want to give you a word for that this morning just to sort of create uh, a new um, imaginative way to think about that. What does it mean to do the words of Jesus? In one word, it's incarnation. Okay? It's the word incarnation. Here's what I mean. So the gospel writer John writes in chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh and he dwelt among you. That's incarnation. The incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus himself, is that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. What is it that Jesus wants from you? He wants his words to become flesh in your life and to dwell out in the world. He wants when you go to work this morning, you to be a visual representation of the Sermon on the Mount. He wants you to incarnate the Sermon on the Mount. He wants it to be such in your life that when your kids or your spouse or your friends or your neighbors look at you, they know what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They they look at you to understand what it means to serve God and not mammon. They look at you to understand what it means to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus wants his words to actually be buried in your flesh, to take on flesh in your life, for you to become a visual illustration of of his own ministry. That's a pretty high calling, isn't it? You know, and it's not sort of like, you know, he's he's not putting the bar short, putting it low for you. Jesus thinks that much of you in your dignity and in your capacity to call you to be an incarnation of his word. But you're not, right? (laughs) We're not like that. You know, there's in reality a gap, a big gap between who Jesus calls us to be and who we actually are. And so the question for us this morning really is also how in the world does that gap get closed in our life? You know, it seems so easy to say, well, it's just the difference between hearing and doing, but that gap is everything in the parable. How does the gap between hearing and doing actually get closed? How do we become incarnations of the word of Jesus? Well, I want you to listen again to what Jesus says in verse 24. Look there with me on your handout. Easy to miss this, these little two words. Jesus says this in verse 24, everyone then who hears and does these words, and then what does he say? Of mine. Do you see that? Everyone who hears and does these words of mine. Of mine. And I want you to see that the focus is not merely on the words themselves. The focus is on the one to whom the words rightfully belong. These are words of his. And so in this parable, Jesus finds it extremely personal on whether or not you obey him. He takes it very personally. These words of mine, he says. So I just want you to reflect for a moment. When in your life, When in your life does someone speak to you and you do it? What has to happen for a person to be able to speak to you, to command you, and you automatically almost do it? You follow through. You you do what they say. Let me suggest to you that one of two conditions has to be fulfilled in your life. The first is the condition of authority. 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 That is to say, um, if a boss comes to you and says, here's a task I need done, you're going to do it. Why? Because the boss has authority in your life. If you're fishing in a river you've never, uh, never fished before, and you've, uh, you've rented a guide to, to sort of be with you and train you, and the guide says, cast over there, you're going to do it. Because you recognize the authority of that guide in this river. Authority. You will do what someone tells you to do when you recognize their authority in your life. The second condition is this. It's that of adoration. Adoration. You will listen to someone who adores you. Someone who loves you. Your daughter comes in to you and says, Daddy, come with me and have a tea party. And you follow her and you have a tea party. Your wife takes your hand and she says, Sweetheart, take me on a date. And you find yourself as a man having tea parties with imaginary characters and eating soufflés that you would never eat with your wife, all because of the people that have commanded you. You adore them and they adore you. You listen to someone who loves you. Authority or adoration? Either one of those are powerful enough to close the gap in your life between hearing and doing, but what men, what if men, those two came together in one person? Imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that someone of ultimate authority, someone of transcendent power, was also someone of ultimate adoration in your life and supreme love. What if the person of greatest significance became also the person of greatest sacrifice for you? And it was deeply personal, it was for you. That's the message of the gospel. That on the cross, in the incarnate word of God, authority and adoration joined together. And the God who is your judge became also the sacrifice who bore your judgment. That is, the God who is the supreme authority, the God who is your judge, bore your sacrifice, became your sacrifice to bear your judgment. So why does that matter? Well, it means this for you this morning, that the words of Jesus to you are never words of burden. They are never words of condemnation. They are always words instead of tenderness and words of life. So Jesus is going to put it like this later in Matthew. He's going to say it this way: Come to me, all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says this: Take my yoke upon you. Well, what is his yoke? His yoke is his word. Take my teachings upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find, in obeying me, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, that is my words, is, are easy, and my burden is light. Will you listen to the one in whom authority and love find their ultimate fulfillment in your life? Men, these are not just words. They are his words. They belong to him. And as such, they are words of of grace to you, both in warning and in hope. Look, I know that some of you need to rebuild this morning. Some of us need to cultivate stronger foundations before the storms come, because one thing that is clear in the parable is that when the storms come, and they will come, what happens? It's too late. You notice that? All All the work has to happen before the storms come. Some of us have to rebuild, and some of us need to cultivate stronger foundations. And the only way that happens for any of us, the only way that we become doers is a greater vision of the one who speaks to us as both our Lord and our Savior. He is inviting you to come to him and to obey him and to find rest in your obedience because he loves you. That is the message of the stable foundation, the one who builds on a rock. Finally this morning, I just want you to consider the two futures as we leave here. As we conclude, so um, one man has built wisely. One man has built deeply. One man has built foolishly and superficially. And it's easy for us to think in the building that the one who has built wisely, the one who has built deeply, will be rewarded for his obedience, and will be released from the consequences of the fool. In other words, he um, he will avoid the pain and hardship that will um, that will confront the fool. Right. Like, the, the, one should be rewarded, one won't be. Well, I, it's not that easy. Look at the parable again and notice that both men experience the drenching rains. Both men experience the, the rising floods. Both, both men go through the relentless winds. That is to say, what Jesus is saying is that both men will suffer regardless of how well they've built. And that flies in the face of how we tend to view religion and morality. Tim Keller puts it like this. The basic premise of religion, that if you live a good life, things will go well for you, is wrong. The basic premise of religion, that if you live a good life, things will go well for you, that is wrong. Jesus was the most morally upright person who ever lived, and yet he had a life that was filled with the experience of poverty, rejection, injustice, and even torture. You know, earlier in the sermon, I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus said that God is the God who makes the rain to fall and the sun to come up on who? The just and the unjust. This is the inverse of that principle. That God hands suffering both to the wise and to the fool. And so we're not wrong to ask the question, what reward then is there for wisdom? What reward then is there, what gain is there in building wisely? Well, here's the, here's the reward, here's the gain in the end. In the face of suffering, Jesus says, the wise man's house will stand. In the face of the storm, in the face of suffering, his house will endure. The life that the wise man builds will make it through the storms. And I want you to see this, men. I want you to notice that this has absolutely nothing to do with his work The fact that he endures, the fact that the house still stands, has nothing to do with the work of his own hands. Notice again, the houses are virtually the same. This has nothing to do with the strength of the wise man's house. It has everything to do with the foundation that has been provided for him by the work of Jesus Christ. And that is grace. Here's God's grace to you this morning your life will count. The work of your hands will stand forever, no matter how flawed that work was, no matter how uneven the roof line, no matter how hideous the paint colors on the house, your work will stand because of the one who bears you up, so that it is true from first to last for all of us, but for the grace of God go I. You say, well, why suffering then, right? I mean, why suffering? Why the storms? Why the wind and the pain if the outcome is already guaranteed? Why would God put us through all of that if we already know what's going to happen? And we don't know for sure, except to reiterate his own promise that that God does this for our own good and for his glory. Perhaps it is at least partly this. We never know how strong and how sweet the words of Jesus really are to us until those words become all that we have to cling to in order to survive. You know, men, perhaps in the end, the Lord wants us to trust less in the lives that we build for ourselves and more in the foundation that he has laid upon the life and death and resurrection of his son. And somehow those storms are able to move us into a place of that kind of maturity. In fact, that seems to be the really point of the sermon in the end. I want you to notice how the crowds respond when it's all over to the sermon. Notice how they respond in verse 28? They don't go out and just start doing frantically, do they? They don't just sort of go out and think about, oh, woe is me, I'm not good enough. What is to become of me? How do they respond in the end? What do they do? What do they say? It says, they are what? They are astonished at him, they are amazed by him. They are looking at Jesus, the text says, and they can't take their eyes off of him. May that be us. May his words, may his grace, may his love astonish us in new ways so that we are happy, we are joyful, we are content even when the storms come, knowing that the foundation is able to make our lives stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that your word would, would go in deep. We pray, Father, that we would take time to make sure that your words, um, make sure that they are, uh, are moving and in, um, in becoming a part of us in the deep places, O oh Lord. And we know, Father, we are not up to the task, so we ask that you would give us your spirit to that end. Lord, we pray also for, um, for our own attitude towards you, O oh Lord, we pray even as, um, as we think about the day that, la- that lies before us, Father, that you're able to incarnate your words in our own lives, that we might be living uh, uh, representations, living illustrations of your word. Show us how to do that, we pray, O oh Lord. And most of all, Father, we pray that we would be astonished by Jesus. We pray that he would become more believable and beautiful to us and that that would be reflected in all that we do. We pray in his name. Amen.